0: welcome to the jury is out a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients your co-hosts are john simon founder of the simon law firm and st louis attorney eric veith
1: welcome to another episode of the jury is out i'm eric veith i'm john simon i'm tim cronin we're back today talking about tips for taking
2: depositions rule number 14 undermine discovery objections. Eric, you want to comment on that? I think there's a rubber stamp around town, burdensome and harassing. It goes on to everything. Yeah, overly and, broad, burdensome. And then you establish how easy it is. Yeah. How right, would to you get, get this information? <laughs> Tell me how you do it. Is it on a file that you can click a button and put it in a share file and give it to me such that it will take 30 seconds? Yes. And then stare at the other lawyer. Yeah. They they keep in to mind, this goes question.
0: back to the timing of the deposition. <laughs> right. I always do this early on with at least one witness, a corporate rep, because there's discovery disputes. And as you said, Eric, it's a rubber stamp, you know, overly broad, burdensome. And once you get that, you're eliminating that. The question is, does it lead to the discovery of
2: admissible evidence? How many times do we have motion to compel hearings where without any evidence to support it or any affidavit or anything from their client, We get in there, the other lawyers throwing their hands in the air going, oh, my God, this is going to take hundreds of hours and this is going to cost X dollars. And you come to find out with a corporate rep or some witness later who has custody or control of the documents, none of that was true. And then you got to go back to the court and explain to them, well, actually, they said this, that it's all organized because of course it is. In an easily accessed file that they can just give to me. So do that early and often. I take the position that that's their burden. You know, if they want to
1: come in and win on that objection, they got to show it. You know, I think it usually is persuasive because, like you say, Tim, they come in waving their hands about how burdensome and my client will have to do this and that. No affidavit, no
2: testimony, nothing. Rule number fifteen: Open the door for evidence you want in. John, you want to explain? Yeah. What you so mean by that?
0: a lot of times, let's use a product case for example. If the expert is a experienced expert, they're probably not going to come in and say, this product is wonderful. It's perfectly safe. What they're going to say is it's not defective or unreasonably dangerous. Yeah. Because based on what they say and how they say it, You're going to be able to get other stuff in. If they take the position in the case, either an expert or the defendant, a corporate representative, if they say it's perfectly safe. Or we're a really safe company. Yeah, that's even better because then it brings in all kinds of things. Prior recalls, bad conduct, because what you're doing, if they're saying the product isn't defective or unreasonably dangerous, then you have to prove that. And you're arguing, well, we're trying to get this in or that in to show that it is. On the other hand, if they lower the bar for you and say, we're a perfectly safe company, this is a great product, in
2: order to refute that, it opens the door and lets you get all kinds of stuff in. Rule number 16, set a foundation for excluding expert testimony. This can mean two different things. Either setting a foundation with lay witnesses or other witnesses early, anticipating what the other side's expert's going to say later, such that they don't have a foundation to give that opinion or with the particular expert, have your Daubert motion in mind and all the things you want to be able to say in it to establish with that expert what they know or don't know or can say with reasonable certainty to be able to give the opinion. You know, one overarching one, we don't have this on here, but it's kind of in line with rule number four, make your case better. Before we move on to preparation, it's a rule I've heard you say, John, so I just want to add it in there Try to make your client look good and the other party look bad. That's a good overarching goal yeah, and, and, and hopefully
0: got some evidence where they're helping you <laughs> along with that, right? Yeah.
2: So that's the goals section. Next, we're going to go into rules 17 through 29, which are about preparation.
1: Number 17, read the pleadings and discovery answers. It sounds obvious, right? I think about deeper preparation, like not the night before, but then refreshing and getting ready maybe the day before. When you read those pleadings and discovery answers, light bulbs go on and you're going, oh, I didn't remember that thing. And now, or, or it didn't make sense then, but now you know more things and now it can be put together better. That's a great point. You know more about the case at this point.
2: I mean, you need to be going back and look at your pleadings as you're learning about the case and what it's really about to make sure whether you need to replete it so that you're asserting something more specifically that you didn't before that you now know is the focus of the case or oh, crap, I didn't ask about something in discovery. I'm glad I went back and looked at these discovery answers again. It reminds me I need to send out another set of discovery. And as far as the preparation, the pleadings are important, but I think just having
1: those jury instructions, the verdict directors in front of you, you know, the first time we pull those out is you're taking the case or not. You haven't even filed the case. Those verdict directors are gold, you know, all the way through the case. I usually have those handy or, you know, if I don't know the theory inside and out, I'll have it right there at the deposition, make sure I'm hammering on those ideas. I find it's more useful when making a deposition outline to have the answers I want or the goals I want rather than questions. Then you can attack those ideas or you can try to approach them from a number of avenues.
2: And by the way, when we say read the pleadings, we mean both yours and theirs. Go back and look at your discovery answers to see if you need to supplement and remind yourself about what your answers have been, what documents you produced. Read not just your complaint or petition about what you've asserted, read their answers. It may remind you there is an affirmative defense they asserted that I forgot about that I think I can eliminate with this witness. I find this usually not helpful reading
1: the answer, but there's like a couple things in there that are good, and they're clues to where they think they're going to go. So, it's really tempting to just read the answer and go, yeah, 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 okay. And there's 18 paragraphs. You deny everything. Punitive damages, being unconstitutional, and all that. But there's things in there. Number 18 decide which documents you want to use and mark and highlight them in advance. Boy, there's nothing like fumbling for documents at a deposition when you got the momentum and you can't find something,
0: especially Zoom depositions, videotape depositions let's face it, when you're taking a deposition, you're in trial. I mean, that deposition is going to be played or can be played at trial. You should approach it that way. You should approach it and handle it with that in mind.
2: Yeah, not just to make the deposition go more smoothly, but because everything you do, you are creating an impression both to the opposing side about your competence and level of preparedness and to the jury, and you want them to know you're not wasting their time. Case in point, I haven't really been watching much of it, but it's hard not to read some of the headlines and see some of the clips in the Johnny Depp Ember Heard trial. Johnny Depp made fun of the opposing lawyer because they took 10 minutes to find a document while he's sitting on the stand and the jury's getting frustrated and the jury laughed. And I think that really hurt the other lawyer's case that he's wasting everybody's time looking for a document. Every moment that you're competently
1: pulling exhibits out and using them and building momentum and keeping the thing going is you're basically announcing to everybody, this is how I try cases. Yeah. And not only that, you're giving the witness a break. You want
0: a really good flow. You want to get some cadence going with the witness. You want to develop some momentum. And all of that is gone and destroyed if you're fumbling with documents.
2: Number 19, then, is kind of a
0: second part of number 18. Go over the documents with your video tech the day before the deposition. So I started doing this in the past few years, and I can't tell you how helpful this is, I've got them lined up. I've got my exhibits marked. I've got them pre-highlighted. I may even have a PowerPoint together with the documents because I want to be able to get to them quick, go through them quick without the delay. And Almost every time, without exception, that I review them the day before, there's one of them that's out of order, or there's one of them that's missing, or the number's wrong, or the video tech who's going to put it on the screen for me doesn't have it. If it is a video clip, you definitely want to watch the video. Yes, and so it's been so helpful. And, And the other thing, too, it makes you focus even more on them. Maybe you put them out of order a little bit. I change the order sometimes. Sometimes I eliminate some of them. It's a really, really helpful practice. And I know the reporters... And I tell them, I say, look, it's gonna take another 20 minutes the day before, charge me for it, whatever, but it
1: ends up saving you time in the deposition anyway. There's an overall principle to that about, I'm just gonna call it fluff. It's not really fluff. It's just that when you start developing a case, it's more unwieldy. And as you keep revisiting it, you can get it tighter and tighter until it's showtime. That's a really good point. And again, I think everything we do is auditioning, everything. And so when you go into a deposition and it's bang, 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 and then you're out, and you're out before they
2: realize you're even going. That's a very powerful signal about, here's what you can expect more of a trial. And, you know, if you're not as tech savvy, I know, John, you like to have someone up pulling up the exhibits so you can focus on what you're doing and not clicking on a computer and finding documents and pulling them up and highlighting them. For younger lawyers that are willing to do that, That doesn't mean you don't do this step. Go over the documents yourself, pull them each up. What I do is I create a separate folder for that depot with the documents I'm going to use and only those documents I'm going to use. Mark them, put them in the order I'm going to use them, highlight them, and I go through them multiple times to make sure that's the order I want and I'm ready to just click on each one and share my screen. Number 20. Do your homework on the
1: witness. In today's day and age, with everything online, about everybody,
0: I mean, there is no reason in the world not to have tons of information on most witnesses,
1: especially experts, right? I mean, maybe a lay witness, you'll find, okay, they're on Facebook or whatever, but with experts, you can find all kinds of articles and commentary, you'll find maybe they posted and commented on an issue near and dear to your case. I like finding videos of the witness I'm
0: going to depose. If it's a corporate rep or an expert, there's videos out there where most of them have done, some of them done a bunch of them. If you haven't had that witness before, gives you a real good feel for who the witness is and their demeanor and whether they're likable or not. So not just videos, but prior depositions, articles that they've written,
2: depots, reports, interviews they've given to reporters that are in the newspaper, all those kinds of things to blow them up with. Make clear early, you have read them and are ready to mark them. And you know all the things they've said or written before. Once you do that a few times, they might be a little more scared to go out on a limb and more likely to start agreeing.
0: With and you, you know, the other thing too is it's not just gathering a bunch of documents that you're going to use to cross-examine the witness. It really gives you a feel for who that person is, the more stuff that you see about them online, and it can help with your approach. You know what questions you want to ask, but you don't know what approach you want to take with that particular witness, and that's going to depend on how they are. Are they likable? Are they easygoing? Are they sort of a jerk? You go online, and you'll have a whole better feel for who that person's going to be before they're sworn in.
1: Number 21,
0: prepare a written outline.
1: Oh, come on, Eric, we'll remember all that stuff. I know what my case is about. I don't need a <laughs> written outline. I'm going to confess that on every deposition I take, I have something, and even an auto case. I've taken you know hundreds of depositions and people in automobile crashes. I have a standard outline for that. I tweak that. I add things to it as I go. But every case, I have something in front
2: of me. I never go into a depot winging it, ever. I generally have an outrageously too detailed outline then I can go back to it. I'll go off of it and pay attention to the witness, but my outlines are usually
0: ridiculously detailed. So I think the best thing about an outline is the fact that you've prepared it. It caused you to not just think about what the issues are, but writing them down. It's so helpful. Something else to a little tip, what I do with my outlines, a lot of our cases have a dozen or more, maybe two dozen depositions. We're not lucky enough to be able to say, okay, I'm gonna block out these three weeks and take all the depositions. You jump from one case to another. And what I do all the time is, I prepare the first two or three pages of every deposition outline is essentially a summary of the case, meaning who are the witnesses, what are some of the issues, what are some of the legal issues, what are some of the factual issues. I have a section on documents or definitions, for instance, if it's a medical malpractice case, and so the first deposition outline that I prepare in that case, I spend a lot of time preparing this summary. And it's added to as the case moves along, but it's something that I don't need to do twice. When I'm on the second deposition, I always use it as the first two or three pages of each deposition outline. And again, medical terms, definitions, industry standards, specific admissions by a witness in a prior deposition, a list of the witnesses, who they are. If it's an auto accident, I'll put a little diagram of the scene and the cars and the location and information from the police report, and what that does, it's quite a time saver because you know you're going to take more than one deposition in the case. And you don't have to go back and pull the pleadings or pull the
1: police report and things like that. I think it's a quote attributed to Einstein. Don't memorize what you can write down. I don't know if it's true or not. It's attributed to him. But what you just described, John, certainly reduces cognitive load. If I don't have that stuff down and I do something similar to what you're doing, it's kind of like a, you know, a cheat sheet of who's who. Right. It
0: lets you think about what's being talked about, what's being asked, what your next question
1: is versus trying to remember what the facts of the case are. Or the name of a witness slips your mind and then it frustrates you and you're flipping through something to find someone's name. It's really great to have it just to refer to if you need it. And it's interesting, and both of you alluded to this, when you create the deposition outline, you're thinking about what to ask, but when you get in there, and I think it probably occurs to all of us because we keep reinforcing the importance of listening to the witness and following those leads, it turns into a checklist. So it's not like you need to look at it as you're taking the deposition. I look at it sometimes, but certainly before the deposition is over, before I say I have no more questions, I use it as a checklist. Have I covered everything?
2: So part of prepare an outline, which is rule 21, rule 22, which is part of that, is write out exact questions on key issues. You may have a very particular choice of words that you think best helps you to get the answer you want, or that particular choice of words is important because It's going to be in the jury instructions and you want them to agree with it. It goes back to we talked about rules of the road before, and that's where I get a lot
0: of pushback from experts or witnesses. When you say, do you agree that car companies should test their cars before they sell them to the public? Well, what do you mean by test or a reasonable car manufacturer should warn of potential dangers with their car, their product or whatever? if you're taking an expert's deposition, the other side's expert, you need to be prepared for them not to agree with you about anything. They're going to say, what do you mean by that word? I don't understand that word. What's your definition? And a lot of times, if you rephrase it and you don't have it written down, you're just going to dig yourself in a deeper hole. I'll tell you another really good reason to write it down. You've all had these witnesses who are just trained to be evasive, especially experts, corporate representatives, where they just won't answer the question, period. It's not going to happen. And You'll ask a very specific, direct, simple question, and they'll go on for 60 seconds with a speech about one thing or another, and they do that on every question. And so what I do is rather than when you re-ask and it's not written down, you may re-ask and it's rephrased a little bit, and so it's not the same, I'll re-ask the same exact question. The other thing to do, too, is put it up on the screen. Put that question up on the screen, be able to pop it up there so that when the witness is being evasive, the jury's staring at the question going, "Hell, I think it's a pretty good question. You haven't answered that yet. The reason they're going on a speech for 60 seconds is so the jury will forget about what the question is. And if you got it up there on a screen, the jury's staring at it while they're mumbling and not answering. So I think it's really important on the key issues. For instance, agency. If you got an agency issue in the case, depending on what state you're on, look at the cases and see what the exact language is that applies to your situation and put that language in your question. Maybe some factual findings where a court found that there was agency and you can trace that exact language. So all of this stuff, writing it down, preparing the outline, writing out the questions, it just, no question, it helps you be a better lawyer. It helps you do a better job in the deposition
1: because you've spent more time analyzing what the issues are. I could never be an actor. I can't remember exact lines. I just can't, but I remember ideas and I can cobble together ideas into questions, but there's something really cool about, John, what you just said, research the hell out of this issue and make your question exactly the way it needs to be. And then at that point in deposition where you come along to that question, there's a joy in reading it, knowing that you have already, you know, put it together exactly the way you want it. You don't have to worry that you're putting it together exactly the right way. Again, it reduces cognitive load and you can focus more on what you're doing.
2: What is number 23, Eric? Know what testimony you want. And have a plan for how you're going to get it. Right. Rather than just, here's a bullet point of what I want the guy to say. If it's something that might be difficult, you might want to have a game plan of how you're going to get them there rather than just, hey, will you admit this thing? You can set them up so they have to admit it. Number 24, get the expert's file ahead of time. This is extremely important. You may end up having to waste half your day just trying to figure out and establish what's in their file. Yeah. And
0: even though you ask, we've talked about this before on podcasts, I don't know how many times I've asked or had an agreement that we each provide our experts files so many days in advance. There's still quite a few times where it's six o'clock the day before the depot that's starting at eight or nine. And now with being able to send files, all of a sudden there's five thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand quote new documents that somehow they just realized that we needed when the case had been pending for a year and a half and we've asked them about it. And so what I do is I put that request in writing to get the expert's file. Put it in writing and explain also in an email or whatever why you want it. And what I do is I say we need to get it everything in advance because if we don't have it in advance, it may cause a significant delay in the deposition and an inconvenience to you and your client okay, or your witness. And then when they throw it at you, the night before, worse the morning of, what I do is I say, okay, if the depot was nine o'clock and I get 3,000 pages of documents to look at, you got one of two choices. You can cancel the deposition and reschedule, or you can say, okay, well, let's come back at two
1: or noon, and I've done that before, so I have an opportunity to look at the documents. Especially given the time limits on depositions now, you don't wanna be spending four hours going through a file that might eat into your time
2: that you really need for real testimony. Number 25, talk to your own expert. This is something that I think almost nobody does enough. I know I certainly don't. Utilize your expert. You're paying them. They're there for a reason. They're not just there to give a depot and say the opinions that they've told you they're going to give. They can be there to help you throughout the case. To better understand the issues, the medicine, call them, pick their brain every once in a while if you're struggling to understand a concept. Cross-examine them. Yeah. you know that's where you get your best stuff, I think, is you challenge them and then they think deeper. They go
1: down another level. Oh, here's why I think that. Also, talking to your expert, it just keeps their mind
2: on the case, keeps them thinking about it. What can I get from people that's going to help you later? Yeah. Where do you think this person of theirs is going to go and how can I do an end around and not let them go there? So utilize the experts. You're paying them. Might as well use them. 26. Make things easy for your treating doctor. Make a call to the doctor's office and
0: kind of take the temperature in terms of whether the doctor, it's an inconvenience or the doctor is willing to give a deposition. You got to be real careful because a lot of times treating doctors, it's an imposition on them to give a deposition. And it is taking time out of their practice, even though you're paying them for it. And sometimes when you're told, no, we don't want to give a deposition or whatever, be careful because you certainly don't want to piss the doctor off. I've seen like crazy instances where people would subpoena a treating doctor (laughs) which is a disaster. You don't want to do that. So you got to be mindful of that, first of all. But when you do get the deposition set, let the doctor's office know, hey, I'm going to prepare a set of records. They're going to be in chronological order. We'll bait stamp them. You may even want to get them to the doctor's office ahead of time. A big thing, too, if you've got a client with priors, you got a back injury, but the client had prior, don't let your treating doctor get ambushed. Right. Get a copy of those prior records and send them along ahead of time also. Don't bring them to the deposition. Send them ahead of time and let the doctor know, okay, here's what's coming. We're sending these two things, so you'll be prepared to know what's going on. Organize the records. Send the prior records. Anything you can do to make that depot go smoother or easier for the doctor, you need to be thinking about. Yeah, they'll
2: appreciate it. And it tends to then get reflected in what they say.
0: And I think also, too, you know, when you do that, it sort of makes them realize not that they don't know the depots are important. But if you've gone through the trouble a week before to organize records and bait stamp them and get an index of the prior records and a notebook for them, it reinforces the importance of what you believe your case is very important to them. Number 27, think about whether you should meet with a third party
1: or an independent witness.
0: Tim, what do you think about that? Let's take an auto accident where you got a witness. They made a statement in the police report, good, bad, whatever it is. Do you want to go meet
2: with them and have coffee and talk with them for half an hour or just take their deposition? I just want to take their deposition. I don't want it to look like I'm trying to influence or corrupt the witness. We have examples where I think we've talked about this one before. It was an uninsured motorist claim, but, you know, it's an auto accident claim. It just happens to be about a phantom vehicle, and then you're suing your client's insurance company, for their underinsured coverage. And there was a defense attorney who we had a depot noticed up of a key witness who it was crystal clear from the police report was the key witness that said she saw exactly what was our client's version of the case and meant we won. And you remember this, John? Yes, I do. He and an associate went to this witness's house. They asked her what happened. She told them the same thing she said in the police report. Then they typed up a statement for her that completely contradicted it and tried to force her to sign it. We didn't know about any of that. We had sent her a request for a deposition date. I think she agreed to accept service of a subpoena. We were very nice with her. And she told us before the depot what had happened and gave us a copy of that statement. And not only was that witness the star of the show because of what she was saying, it highlighted her testimony even more that they knew. With what she was saying, they were done. You know, you got a police report, you have a
0: statement, good, bad, or otherwise, that's the statement, and you're going to be able to hold them to that in the deposition. And if the statement's favorable or you want to take the deposition, what I would do is I always have somebody else in the office, either a secretary or paralegal, contact them, not a lawyer, to explain, hey, we want to take your deposition, and I always send them a copy of the police report. Rarely does anything good happen with meeting with a witness, especially if they've already given a statement. Right.
2: Number 28, know the law on key issues in your case. If you got to prove agency, you might want to take a look at what the agency instruction is going to say and what the case law says when you're responding to summary judgment.
0: Yeah, especially like, for instance, agency. It's not just the verdict director, the end result of what you need to show but it's how courts have interpreted certain fact scenarios. Right. For instance, in a hospital setting, there are cases out there that say, okay, under these particular circumstances, based on these 15 things, we find that there was agency.
2: Now you know you need to go to establish as many of those
0: 15 things as you can. Right, it's not just putting the verdict directing language in your question, but it's figuring out what factual information you need to elicit to support that claim. Causation, that's another thing. Contributed to cause, you may be in a state where You don't have contributed. You need to have causation being a significant factor. What does that mean from a factual standpoint? What kind of testimony
2: do you need? If you're practicing in a state that you're not used to practicing in as much, what magic words does a doctor or expert have to say to be able to give a causation opinion? In Missouri, within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, that means more likely than not. But if they don't say those words, they can't give it. Well, if you have a case in Oklahoma and you haven't before, it's probably not the same phrase. You better find out what it is.
1: And This will be our last tip for today. Number 29, know the exact language you need to exclude expert testimony. It's
2: kind of
0: like what Tim was just talking about, and that is, can you say it to a reasonable degree of scientific
2: certainty, medical certainty? I had a depot in a case that your daughter Mary and I were going to try, and we were a week or two before the pretrial, and I was taking the defendant's last expert in the case. It was a birth injury case. It was a failure to give Rogam which women get if their child's blood is positive, but theirs is negative, or the opposite of that. And it was their causation expert, and the guy brought a report with him. I think I'd gotten it the day before, and I noticed the way he was talking about causation, the defendant wanted to say there's all kinds of other things that could have caused this little girl's problem, but the report didn't say, I can say within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, all or some of these specifically that mom smoked, did. And that wasn't in the report. And like the first thing I did in that depot was I go over these and I said, okay, you cannot give an opinion for any one of these, any one of them within a reasonable degree of medical certainty that it caused or contributed to cause. And he said, no, I can't. And the lawyer's freaking out. And then I went specifically to smoking and he said he cannot do that. And the lawyer tried to fix it in the end in a break. Well, more likely than not, it has to be some of them or all of them. And based on what he had said with the exact words earlier, the judge excluded that testimony, which was devastating to them, that they couldn't get in that mom smoked. And the case settled the next day. It goes
0: back to what we were saying before is have a plan, know what you want right. to do. Know why you're taking the deposition. Well, so these were all great rules or tips. We didn't finish all of them, but we covered strategy, goals, preparation. And in the next episode, we'll talk about actually taking the deposition and some uh, tips for when you're taking it.
1: We're all looking forward to it. Anyway, that's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. See you next time. I'm Eric Vieth. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at juryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers
2: never stop learning.